0: Welcome to Risk Watch, a podcast that sheds light on emerging compliance and due diligence issues. I'm your host, Alex Soren. Risk Watch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence and background check investigations with offices in Los Angeles, New York, Washington D.C., and Boston. To learn more about how VCheck can help solve your due diligence needs, you can visit our website at vcheckglobal.com. In this episode of the podcast, I spoke with Sean Hauser, who is a partner and chair of the Hemp Cannabinoids Practice Group at Vicente Cederberg. Sean helps marijuana and hemp businesses navigate state and federal law, investment, regulatory compliance, and intellectual property. We covered a number of items in our talk, including how the legal landscape has changed over the years, how companies in this space can navigate regulatory compliance, and some core requirements for conducting due diligence. I had a great time speaking with her, and I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks for being here, and it's great to see you again. Thanks. Great to see you too. Thanks for having me on the pod. Of course. So I think it's fair to say that you and your firm are pioneers in the hemp and cannabis law and policy space. And you really got in on the ground floor before the idea of legalization became the norm. And I'd like if you can take us back to why you initially got involved in the space.
1: Sure. I initially got involved really from a patients and advocacy and medical perspective. In college, I had was pretty certain I was, was going to be a, a physician, wanted to work in the medical field, particularly in, in mental health, which is kind of the, the family business and really help people feel better quality of life. But in, in my tenure during pre-med, really started reading about the endocannabinoid system, what was going on with medical marijuana in states like California, the, the research in Israel, and really became passionate and certain that that was you know, real medicine that patients needed and that the laws were not only outdated and unjust from a number of perspectives, but also from a, a social justice and criminal justice perform perspective. So became very passionate about the issue. My father told me I couldn't just go to medical school and, and treat patients with medical marijuana. I needed to, to change the law, which was right. So I um, came out to, to Colorado for law school in 2008, which was before we had regulations for a commercial system. We had patients and caregivers and medical marijuana, but before commercial systems and before legalization. So got involved in the reform efforts and legalization campaign the 2012 campaign while I was in law school. And then I've been working in the space since then and I've been with
0: Vicente Cedarberg for a little over six years. So how much has the landscape changed since you first got started?
1: Monumentally. When I first started Colorado, although it was one of the more progressive states, you know, had a, a limited patient caregiver system, you had the right to use medical marijuana and cultivate your own plants or have someone grow it on your behalf. But there, were not dispensaries, there weren't dispensaries there weren 't regulated grows there weren 't the quality and safety controls there weren 't you know brands and companies out there developing intellectual property. It was very much the very basic ground floor in, in, in getting some really sick people medicine and then it's, you know it 's really invo- evolved in Colorado and you know the majority of states into what most states have, which is a, a robust medical system. Ten states now have have legal marijuana and we 're going to see likely a number of other states this year legalize as well as well as other countries. And now, it's being 2020 in Colorado, um not only do we have a robustly regulated medical and adult use marijuana program, one of the most mature in the country, but we also have things like delivery and hospitality and additional conditions like like autism on the on the medical list and grants for research and you know, really have taken it to the next level of what the end of prohibition should,
0: should ultimately look like. Mm-hmm. So in December 2018, hemp was delisted from the Controlled Substances Act as part of the Farm Bill. And I'd like if you can talk about the significance of that in terms of how hemp is regulated.
1: Sure. So it's interesting because hemp is really the more non-controversial variety of the plant. Most other industrialized countries have been growing it as an agricultural crop for decades. But in in the U.S., it got kind of lumped in with with marijuana prohibition and it was illegal to grow any, any part of the plant until 2014 when we had The first federal hemp program, which was a a limited research program under the the 2014 Farm Bill, which was passed by Obama, and that program basically allowed states to adopt research programs to study the cultivation of hemp, and you could study it for commercial purposes. So it sort of initiated the the start of the the hemp and the hemp-derived CBD industry, and we started understanding how to grow the plant for the first time in the United States for decades. Colorado was one of the first states to have a hemp program. We actually, in the Amendment 64, the constitutional amendment that legalized marijuana in Colorado, we were actually part of making sure there was a, a protection for hemp there and that it was you know, regulated separately from marijuana And so from 2014 to 2018, there were an increasing number of states that had these these pilot programs. By the time we got the 2018 Farm Bill, over 30 states had operable programs. The 2014 Farm Bill didn't actually go in and amend the Controlled Substances Act. It just made exceptions for research activities that fell within the program. What was historical and game-changing with the 2018 Farm Bill is that it amended the Controlled Substances Act so that Hemp, defined as any part of the cannabis plant under three-tenths of percent THC, was no longer regulated and classified as marijuana Schedule One controlled substance. It's not scheduled, regulated like an agricultural commodity governed by the United States Department of Agriculture. And for the first time we have a federal regulatory framework governing how that hemp is cultivated and produced from seed to sale. With the twenty fourteen Farm Bill, which I mentioned earlier, there was no federal framework. It was all up to states to determine how they wanted to conduct their research programs. Mm-hmm. So now in Colorado and other states, you you know, we've really got two regulatory regimes for the cannabis plant, you know, with, with marijuana and hemp. And they're they're very different, particularly now that one is is completely federally legal.
0: Right. So with the 2018 Farm Bill, did you see that having any effect on encouraging investment in the industry or did it create more confusion among investors?
1: I think it open the door to, to more investment. You know, I think there's groups of investors that will wait until federal illegality. And this is sort of you know an, an entree into the cannabis plant and seeing that companies are going to be able to grow this variety while well at scale you know, may also be successful on the marijuana side because we're able to do federally legal research on the hemp plant. There's a lot of valuable intellectual property and brands and operations that are, are coming from the hemp side. They don't have the same limitations coming out of some restrictions on the, you know, banking and and finance and and tax side that also make it more attractive to investors. But, you know, I think given that we have a federally legal framework, it's brought a lot of investors off the fence. And we're also seeing a lot of marijuana companies do or a lot of cannabis companies do both marijuana and hemp.
0: Right. So there seems to be like a lot of there's a lot that goes into navigating cannabis and hemp regulation before somebody can launch or invest in an enterprise. So as an attorney, what are the starting points for you when a client comes to you and they and you want to help them understand the process and what what this is going to entail?
1: Sure, I mean really understanding how the these businesses and products are regulated and the, the risks associated with both marijuana and hemp. There are state laws and often local laws that that govern how the plant is produced and sold, in, in addition to federal laws. And you know, understanding the not just the risks, but the unknowns, which are part of the risk that come with that mm-hmm. on the the marijuana side, federal illegality comes with a number of of nuanced legal issues to understand, everything from money laundering laws to interstate transport Mm. restrictions to the risks in aiding and abetting or directly being involved in selling a controlled substance and the fact that they're operating basically under the principles of now rescinded enforcement guidance that says that the federal government's going to let state-level marijuana regimes operate without interference so long Mm. as they don't trigger certain priorities. And so it's understanding when an investment may not only be safe, but may have a chance of being profitable. And different states have different regulatory structures. Some like Colorado are set up so that it's not merit-based. It's more of an open market. If you can meet the qualifications to own a license and find a compliant location, set up a compliant facility and play Mm -hmm. by the rules, you can operate in some states, New York and New Jersey, you have companies competing for a small number of licenses. There are states with vertically integrated systems, with limitations on product types, with limitations on ownership, on taking public investment, or sorry, investment by, by public companies, foreign investment, and things like that, that, that make each state really a, a unique assessment. Mm-hmm. And so part of the science of understanding cannabis law and risk is is really understanding the nuances of the state frameworks and then bringing that to a macro level and looking at where operations are in different states, whether there's intellectual and, and real property and, and other assets that, that go along with the, with the business. Mm-hmm. And then the, the regulatory unknowns, were, we were likely years away from federal legalization. What's that going to look like? What, if any, part of the plan is going to be regulated by FDA versus something like the Tobacco and Trade Bureau? To what what extent will pharmaceutical companies have control over certain formulations that are patented? Also, all sorts of unknowns that
0: folks need to understand. How much on the how head much of side a, of emphasis is there on transparency when it comes to? So, say a cannabis enterprise comes to you and they want you guys to represent them. How much of an issue is it to you, like to stress to them the importance of transparency when it comes to who's behind the company, who are their financial backers, things like that? Because it's not federally legal yet, so. A lot of this stuff's not very clear on what's required of them and what's not, but I would assume that people who are thinking about investing in them want to be able to see these things.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's it's a critical issue because in most states, they have very robust requirements as far as ownership and will... Require significant disclosure and limitations on who can own and who can have control over these businesses, directly and indirectly. And that's because it's federally illegal. They're operating under these enforcement priorities to make sure there's not cartel activity and bad actors owning this industry. And most state legislators and officials really want to get this right and want to make sure that you know there's good operators in the business. So. Generally, the state regulators will require significant disclosures as far as the ownership. Who are your financers? Who are your investors? Who are your indirect owners? And, and who has you know any sort of control over the company? Colorado's, like I said, one of the most mature markets, but only last year did we allow public companies to invest in the industry just because our ownership requirements were so stringent and so much transparency was
0: required. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to compliance, it sounds like even getting started is you know a monumental feat in itself but what would you recommend cannabis companies do in order to remain compliant in the long term
1: I mean it's all about having a sophisticated and good internal team and then you know a great inner circle of advisors so having a team that's experienced in not just general compliance but cannabis compliance it's really a compliance business that's that sells cannabis so you know having your internal structure set up to be compliant and understand what's coming. The rules change all the time on the local, state, and federal levels. So keeping up with it, having it good SOPs, and also, like I said, a good inner circle, a good CPA, a good compliance team, good auditors, and good practices will keep folks up to speed. And nowadays, there's great technologies. There's there's great compliance softwares and companies that are excellent in helping businesses succeed on that piece.
0: Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about some of the background check regulations that are stipulated in the Farm Bill when it comes to to hemp regulation?
1: Sure. What's in the federal Farm Bill is a provision that essentially says that if you have a drug-related felony within the past 10 years, then you cannot participate as a a key personnel in the, the cultivation of hemp. And that means you have kind of a ownership or controlling interest in the hemp operation rather than... It wouldn't apply to like a, a farm worker or a contract laborer. And that's a provision that states do not have the ability to treat differently. Although I know there's going to be significant efforts to... And there are significant efforts to change that provision. It really unfairly penalizes people that were harmed by the drug war and or have successfully completed sentences and have rehabilitated in the society and have there's no justification for keeping them out of this industry. But regardless, it's there and states are going to have to background check key personnel for controlled substances and other felonies. Under the Farm Bill, states have the ability to adopt more stringent requirements than federal law. So there may be states that have more stringent background requirements than that. The so farm bill does.
0: by key personnel, are you talking about C-suite?
1: Yeah. So C-suite and ownership interest.
0: Okay. So like people who hold a key financial interest in the company. Right. Got it. So when you guys are conducting due diligence on behalf of a client, what are the key red flags that, that'll stick out to you or that you're looking for when when you're initiating these checks? I mean, obviously, the I mean, background fa- and some of the stuff we talked about, but I was wondering if there's anything else that, that stands out to you as as a big red flag.
1: Sure. I mean, it it depends on, I guess, the type of business we're looking at. For a a standard hemp and marijuana business, we're we're really looking at the qualification and eligibility of the ownership team and the the validity of its finances, the validity of of its leases and ownership. To make sure all is legitimate and all is compliant from a, a corporate perspective, making sure all that housekeeping is in place, mm-hmm. and in some of these states where people are competing, applicants are competing for a limited number of licenses. You know, the stakes are much higher, and you're really looking for a competitive ownership structure with with leadership and diversity and significant experience in the space, and you know, certainly squeaky clean backgrounds. Mm-hmm. But most state regulators are, you know, focused on financial white white collar criminal issues anything related to controlled substances and also anything that involves lying to the government you know falsifying a document outstanding taxes and
0: and things like that would right. be disqualifying and challenging for a business so with it getting so competitive in order to obtain a license because there are limited numbers is that opening up the door for potential corruption issues or bribery issues
1: Yes. I mean, in in a number of states where they've had limited licenses, there have been incidences of corruption on the local levels. We're seeing, you know, allegations of that in Massachusetts currently where there is local approval and local host agreements required for limited numbers of licenses. And that's, you know, incentivized bad actors in other states, whether there's merit in some of these states where they've issued three licenses for a state. they almost undoubtedly result in a lawsuit and there's some allegation of impropriety. Right. So it's a tricky system.
0: Right. So going back, it's interesting if we could talk about verifying the financials of a company and its, and its sources of capital and that it actually has adequate capital and things of that nature. How difficult is that given the nature of the hemp and marijuana business and that it's, it's still federally illegal? so it's still primarily a cash business, right?
1: Many more... Companies have have bank accounts these days, but it yes, in many cases is a cash business we're close to passing federal banking reform, but not quite there yet, mm-hmm. although there's federal guidance that confirms banks can serve hemp businesses there's federal guidance that confirms banks can serve marijuana businesses as long as they file certain reports and do certain due diligence mm-hmm. so many businesses do do have bank accounts, but it's still a, a challenge and to answer your question, I think it's it depends. On the state on the requirement, some states have substantial disclosure financial disclosure requirements. Mm-hmm. I've seen some merit based applications. We have to provide you know ten years of tax returns for each individual owners. Others are more general, so they can be very. There's a spectrum, but they're they're generally pretty robust. And most state regulators will want to do a, a deep dive into everyone that potentially has an interest or investment into the business and. On the hemp side, it's a little bit less stringent. Mm-hmm. There's not kind of these competitive licensing systems. There's not the federal illegality. So often, aside from the background check, State Department of Agriculture won't be concerned with financials rather than just eligibility, mm-hmm. but investors certainly are. So I think that the more sophisticated businesses who
0: keep good records are going to be in better shape. Right. So I'd like if you can touch on some of the risks that cannabis or hemp companies need to be aware of when it comes to third parties, so their suppliers and their distributors are. So, are they still on the hook when there are reg- irregularities with their distributors or suppliers, or when something illegal happens with their distributors or suppliers? How how do they manage that risk? There is risk, especially
1: because when marijuana you're dealing with a federally legal substance, and hemp you're dealing with a substance that if someone is not compliant and they're a uh, percentage point off, you're growing marijuana instead of hemp and you're in a totally different legal mm-hmm. bucket. So there is is unique risk and the tools to manage it, you know, one are of course diligence, doing your diligence to make sure your your third parties are legitimate compliant companies. You've verified them, you've verified that their licenses are in good standing mm-hmm. and you know you have good contracts that allocate risk appropriately and that, you know, contemplate for the various scenarios, get indemnification and insurance provisions and representations and warranties to protect against some of these circumstances. But it's much about finding relationships with your trust and folks that have experience and are compliant. It's a new industry. So there's a lot of different third parties to
0: right. sort through. And then to, to put you on the spot, how long until you think that cannabis is, is federally legal?
1: I think it could happen in the next two years. I think we're, we've are we reached the tipping point and mm-hmm. I think it's closer than people think. But I would say two to five years, but cautiously optimistic on the two end.
0: Right. I think it was so January 1st, it was two states in the Midwest permitted the sale of, of legalized recreational marijuana. And so was, that was Michigan and Illinois as of January 1st. I think one of them was, was earlier, right? Yes. So we were talking about every state has variations of their marijuana laws. But as someone who's been so active in the space and so long and in Colorado, what are some of the pitfalls and, and biggest lessons learned from recreational legalization in Colorado that these states should be aware of?
1: I mean, one, I guess just making sure that there's enough supply to satisfy the demand that comes with recreational. And in Colorado, we only had a few businesses able to meet the requirements to come online at the very beginning so it was difficult at the very beginning balancing taxes so that you you know have a reasonable tax rate that isn't so high to drive people to the black market you know that continues to be a problem in mm-hmm. in California you know where they're transitioning from a long time of an unregulated market and really i think setting it up to contemplate things that the market really needs and that are there. I mean one thing we we experienced in Colorado was that we legalized marijuana and didn't have places for people to consume it safely and we're we're just now really getting around to developing and implementing those laws and it's important that people aren't smoking in in parks and on the street and, and have somewhere to to use it responsibly mm-hmm. and that you know that it's it's in, in fact regulated like alcohol and we incentivize that industry as well and that's something that you know, I think other states could do more in tandem with legal sales.
0: Well, I think it's a good place to wrap up. Thanks so much for, for being here and um, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure.